Our Lord Jesus Christ versus the devil. The church versus the world. The church versus the anti-church. Corruption. The American election. All of these are topics in the past week from Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano. I'm here with Matt Gaspers, and we're talking about this amazing one-hour-long video address that Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano gave to the Catholic Identity Conference, the CIC. I was there last year. Unfortunately, I wasn't there this year, but Matt Gaspers was there. And we're going to go through some of the key points. I would even say key theology that Archbishop Vigano is trying to express for our time. Matt Gaspers, how are you? Doing well, Taylor. Good to see you again. Looking forward to our discussion. It was a great conference over this past weekend in Pittsburgh. Uh, Very well attended. I think folks, you know, uh, in 2020, they were starving for an event like this. I I was told that there were around 600 or so attendees, and there would have been maybe even double that had it not been for the restrictions, you know, because of COVID stuff. Right. But it was interesting at the hotel, we had kind of our own little area, you know, a conference room, and it was like a, our own little Catholic colony <laughs> where we could, or as I might say, an oasis of Catholic sanity amidst the uh, the insanity of this year. So it was great. Good, good. Well, there's, I mean, before we went live, guys, Matt and I were saying we could actually do four hours on this. Maybe we'll have to do a part two. I don't know. Might have to. I mean, there's so much here. A lot of what we've heard Vigano saying before about deep church, deep state. But what's interesting this time around is his application to our current time period and his application to the election, which is less than a week away. So That's right. uh, this, is, this is really amazing. So before we begin talking on all these points, uh, Matt and I are going to ask you to pray with us. We'll pray the Our Father, the Pater Noster in Latin. Oremos. In nomine Patris, et Fidei, et Spiritus Sancti. Oh, Matt, we got some weird sound on you. Let me, let me, hang on just a second. All right. What I'll do is I'll mute him. That'll work. And then, oh, he got it off. Uh, sorry about that. What was that? that? Is that devils, man? What was My, going on there? <laughs> My dishwasher was freaking out on me. <laughs> dishwasher, My goodness. All right, let's, let's try this again. Let us pray. Oremos. In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater Noster, qui es in celis, sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in cello et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie, et dimite nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos amalo. Amen. Nomine Patris, et Filii, Et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen. And if Archbishop Vigano is watching, Your Excellency, thank you very much, and we hope you enjoy yes. the show. Okay. Uh, why don't you kind of give us an intro of, of, of what happened here at the CIC, and um, and we'll just get right into to the actual transcript of Archbishop Vigano's talk. Sounds good. So as I mentioned, it was a conference held in Pittsburgh this past weekend, and the theme of the conference, which is really encapsulated in our, the Archbishop's talk, is Christ or Chaos Challenging the New World Order. 
And it was an all-star lineup of speakers, Archbishop Vigano with his pre-recorded uh, video address. Bishop Schneider actually did a live uh, address via the internet, so that was wonderful to see His Excellency from all the way from Kazakhstan. Uh, one of the high points, in my opinion, of the conference, on Saturday morning, there was a mystery guest. Nobody knew who it was. I just heard some some scuttlebutt that it wasn't really a traditionalist per se, and it ended up being none other than Steve Bannon, who joined us via live feed, via Skype. And he really, I was very impressed with his talk. He had some great, uh, very galvanizing words um, of encouragement and really emphasizing the importance of the grassroots traditional Catholics, you know, the importance of us in this movement to reclaim reclaim Christian civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, other speakers included Diane Montagna, Elizabeth Yore, Chris Ferrara. Steve Mosier had an excellent keynote address Saturday evening on the whole Vatican-China deal. He's an expert on Chinese affairs, social scientist. And then on the liturgical front, we had uh, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski gave a great address about the really uh, contrasting the militancy of the the mass propers in the the traditional mass mm. traditional missile and how they've really been neutered uh, and effeminized in a certain way kind of taken out of the new mass it was very interesting to see and then the the closing address at the council was given by father james altman i forget which diocese i believe he's from wisconsin you interviewed him a while back yep. after his uh, his video saying you cannot be a Catholic and a Democrat, period, went viral. So it was good to, to meet him in person. And, uh, yeah, it was an excellent weekend. And all for those interested who weren't maybe able to make it to the conference, uh, the Remnant, Michael Matt, our friend at the Remnant, is making these videos available for purchase on demand if you just visit the, the conference website, which is catholicidentityconference.org. You can find out more information there right and you can watch the speech that we're going to talk about you can watch that right now on Correct. youtube so you can yes i mean don't watch it right now watch what we're going right. to talk about. But, <laughs> um you can watch the whole thing and i would encourage you to do that it's an hour long but you can listen to it at you know 1.5 speed or 2x speed which is something i encourage you to do when you listen to me go ahead and just listen it to 1.5 speed i listen to all my podcasts and youtube stuff at accelerated speed so I can consume more content. Okay, so let's jump into this. Archbishop Vigano, it's interesting, the Bible verse that he leads off with. Uh, well, he says, this, the, he says, uh, uh, scapegoating Francis, how the revolution of Vatican II serves the new world order. And then he puts Matthew 8.22, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Yes. Okay, so we know we're getting serious here, people. This is, right. this is serious. When you lead off with follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead, uh, you know this is going to be no nonsense. And he leads off, uh, we live in extraordinary times. And the opening paragraph jumps right into New World Order and the Deep Church. Yes. So just to give a brief overview, um, you know, some of the primary themes throughout this talk and from the very get-go, that really the nature of what he calls the anti-church, which as I understand it is basically synonymous with the deep church, same thing, the infiltration of of the church. Sometimes uh, earlier he was using the language of parallel church. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think they're all synonyms for the same reality that's taking place. 
um, the relationship between the deep church and the deep state, and then also the, quote, the relationship between the revolution of Vatican II and the establishment of the New World Order. So, yeah, the first, this lecture is divided into 10 sections, and the first of which, as Taylor mentioned, is uh, we live in extraordinary times. And I'd say the focus of it is the establishment of the New World Order, what that looks like, the coexistence of good and evil in the church. And he also emphasizes, which I think is very important, is that he says, quote, there are not two churches, something that would be impossible, blasphemous, and heretical. Right. So as I think we talked during one of our uh, most recent shows together, I think an important reference point is what Chris Ferrara talks about in The Great Facade as, the, as viruses yeah. infecting the mystical body of Christ. So just like a virus, a physical virus, can't subsist or live on its own apart from the living host that it's occupying and borrowing from, basically, the anti-church is, or the the deep church or whatever you want to call it is the same in nature that it can, it doesn't has no existence apart from the actual true church of Christ. So Archbishop Vigano explains the overlap between the Catholic hierarchy and the members of the deep church. And they they're sometimes one and one and the same, right. you know, the, there are bishops who are actual successors of the apostles who are concurrently members of this deep church. So he says it is not a theological fact, but rather a historical reality that defies the usual categories and as such must be analyzed. And he spends a, a good deal of his talk doing that analysis. Yeah, it's, it's I don't know, it, it is a theological fact because when Adam and Eve were in paradise, <laughs> Satan was there. When Christ was assembled with his 12 apostles, Judas was there. Right. When the Council of Nicaea assembled, Arius was there. So the presence of evil, the presence of false clerics, false hierarchs, is part of our story as disciples of Jesus Christ. It's always been there. It's part of what God allows to make us into saints. He allows there to be evil in our midst. And that's... You know, I think it's hard for people to understand this. And I think when people hear Vigano or they hear you, Matt, or they hear me, they hear traditionalists talking about this, they think, well, I, I saw this on Twitter today, Marshall's driving people away from the church. What are you talking about? Marshall's driving away people from the church. Every single day I say, stay in the church, let's fight the fight. And I think right. what they don't understand is, is there's Christ in his kingdom and there's Satan in his kingdom. And you right. belong to one or the other. There is no middle ground. There is no gray. Right now, everyone watching right now, you either belong to the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of Satan, and that's it. Okay, so we can understand that. The The thing that Vigano is saying, and the thing that I think St. Augustine and uh, Tychonius has brought up, there's an interesting book that came out. Have you seen this new book? It's a free book online called Foolishness of God. Hmm, doesn't sound familiar. Okay, it just came out up. on Sunday. It's by a guy named, a pseudonym, Ignatius de Montfort. Okay. And it's an entire treatise on church and anti-church. Hmm, interesting. Very interesting. You guys can download it, search it. I, I think I retweeted it uh, earlier this week. So if you follow me on Twitter, Taylor R. Marshall, you can find that tweet. And It's called The Foolishness of God. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it talks about this mystery of iniquity in which there's evil. You go back to the time of Moses, there's evil. Aaron is setting up an idol. There's, there's right. an infiltration. There's always this thing going on. So church, anti-church, parallel church. But what's going on is, is you have the kingdom of Satan that has weaseled its way into, and it looks like the kingdom of Christ. Right. So there could be a guy who has uh, a red hat, and he's a cardinal, and we call him your eminence. And he's celebrating mass and administering sacraments. But in reality, he works for the other side. He works right. for the devil. This is something that really freaks people out. But what we all learned two years ago with ex-Cardinal McCarrick is it's true. Right. And I think a lot of people, when they hear that, they think, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to lose my faith. And all we have to do is say, no, no, no. Remember Judas. You don't leave Jesus because of Judas. Right. You You don't leave paradise because Satan is there. What we must do is we must recognize the evil, resist the evil, and by God's grace, overcome the evil. That's what Adam and Eve were called to do, and that's what they failed to do. That's what Christ and Mary were called to do, and they succeeded. Right. And Archbishop Vigano brings up the very point you're making about the, you know, we don't leave Jesus because of Judas. He says in section one of his talk, quote, the coexistence of good and evil of saints and the damned in the ecclesial body has always accompanied the earthly events of the church, beginning with the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. He also relates it to the parable of the wheat and the tares, and I just want to commend His Excellency for doing that because he's right on point with traditional ecclesiology. I just want to read very briefly from my trusty uh, Roman catechism. Catechism of the Council of Trent, and this is what it says in the the part on the creed about, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, quote, that the church is composed of the good and the bad we learn from many parables contained in the gospel. Uh, Thus, the kingdom of heaven, that is the church militant, is compared to a net cast into the sea, to a field in which tares were sown with the good grain, to the threshing floor on which the grain is mixed up with the chaff, etc., And long before we trace a figure and resemblance of this church in the Ark of Noah, which contained not only clean, but also unclean animals. End quote. So as you said, it's always been there. It's just just how it is in this fallen world. Yeah. And a lot of low information Catholics, and I don't mean that as a pejorative, most people, if you were raised since the 1970s in the Catholic Church, you were given a low information diet. It's like getting a low protein diet or a diet low in certain vitamins. You were giving you were giving given nutrition that wasn't enough for you, and that wasn't your fault. What happened is catechesis, uh, preparation for baptism, for conversion, for confirmation. It was malformed. I mean, I heard of a story recently where someone said they went through RCIA. And they said, after going through RCIA, Matt, they said, well, the reason I like being Catholic is, you know, we learned in RCIA that Catholics believe all religions are true. <laughs> that's, that's what they took from their catechesis. Mm. And you have celebrity bishops on TV saying things like, Jesus, you know, he's the privileged way. You know, so people are getting from the mouths of Catholic leaders, and we might even say, 
the Pope are, for example, civil unions, death penalty. They are being taught wrongly. Instead of getting a good, hearty sandwich, they're getting something that's rotten or poisoned. And when you're sick after that, again, it's not your fault. Now, if you form your conscience and you still continue to consume the garbage, then it's your fault. But right. people are waking up in 2018, 2019, 2020. And they're like, wait a second. Cardinal, ex-Cardinal McCarrick helped appoint all these people. Here was the messaging of McCarrick. Here are the deals that McCarrick did in China. Here are the deals that McCarrick did in the conclave of Bergoglio. And they're starting to say, oh, wait, I've been eating trash. No wonder I'm sick. No wonder I'm so ill. I've been getting theological garbage. Yep. And that's why we say, read the Bible every day, pray the rosary, and read the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Eat ribeyes. That's right. Brisket. (laughs) Dakes. Filet mignon. Read books by saints. Amen to that. So I think um, one of my favorite sections of this talk is definitely the second section, which is called, and I'm sure you'll have a lot to say on this because it's a major theme in infiltration, the eclipse of the true church. So it Mm. opens by His Excellency saying, quote, for 60 years, we have witnessed the eclipse of the true church by an anti-church that has progressively appropriated her name, occupied the Roman Curia and her dicasteries, dioceses and parishes, seminaries and universities, convents and monasteries. The anti-church has usurped her authority, meaning the authority of the actual church, and its ministers wear her sacred garments. It uses her prestige and power to appropriate her treasures, assets, and finances. So like you were saying earlier, you know, there are members of the hierarchy who are true successors of the apostles, just like Judas was a true apostle, um, who are also, they're like double agents. They're on, you know, they pretend to be ministers of Christ, and, and in a certain juridical sense, they, they truly are. They are successors of the apostles, but at the same time, they're actually doing the work of the enemy. They're spreading those. They are carriers. We talk about COVID-19 all the time. They are carriers of the spiritual virus of modernism, Yes, and they spread it around to people. And that's how they establish the anti-church. The anti-church really exists in living members of the mystical body of Christ who have been infected. That's right. It's an infection. Right. I keep joking. That's going to be the name of the next book. I wrote Infiltration. <laughs> Part two is going to be called Infection. There you go. Uh, it, it is a disease. It is a virus. And we have the solution. We have the cure. The cure is Orthodox Catholicism. Yes. And it's an easy cure. It takes some work. You got to get healthy. But that restoring the Roman rite, going back to the Roman Catholic apostolic faith, that's the cure. And that Mm -hmm. has to do with, and I like how Vigano talks about liturgy. It has to do with liturgy. It has to do with theology. Yes, Yes, for sure. So he mentions in this uh, second section, the eclipse of the true church, which, by the way, uh, folks who have read your book probably recognize that phrase as coming from the secret of Our Lady of La Salette, the 1879 version, 
where she says, quote, the church will be in eclipse. And I read that just uh, before we started in the appendix of one of the appendices of your book. I think it's page 284. I highlighted that one. Getting it right now, yeah. Do you mind if I read that? No, that's fine. Yeah, let let me pull it up real quick. So this is paragraph 31 in the uh, Secret of La Salette. This is our Blessed Mother speaking. The church will be in eclipse. The world will be in dismay. But now Enoch and Elias will come filled with the Spirit of God. They will preach with the might of God, and men of goodwill will believe in God, and many souls will be comforted. They will make great steps forward through the virtue of the Holy Spirit and will condemn the devilish lapses of the Antichrist. And he's referring here to Revelation, Apocalypse chapter 11 of the two witnesses that come in the last time. So what we know from Our Lady of La Salette is the eclipse of the church comes before the final tribulation in which Enoch and Elias appear in Revelation 11. Right. And I think it's also important to note that, you know, that is probably the full eclipse that Our Lady is talking about has not come yet. So if we think it's, you know, it's it's bad now, but it's probably. Well, Matt, you know, I've been thinking about this. Let me throw something out there. You can shoot it down or or modify it. Eclipses are not instantaneous. They're slow. As Archbishop. Yep. They're slow. And so I was thinking, like, well, maybe the eclipse just begun. I was thinking maybe the eclipse began in 1917. Possible. Maybe the eclipse takes a hundred years, where we go, we go, or even more, and we go, and it's the church is fading and fading and fading, and it's all at at a certain point you cannot even see the church. Right. That doesn't when when there's an eclipse, the moon doesn't disappear and stop existing. You just can't see it. Right. So the church will never cease to exist, but there may come a point in time where we look around and we say, where is the church? And the answer right. is, I don't see it. I don't know. That's scary to think about. But that's the it vision is. of an eclipse, is it not? Absolutely. And Archbishop Vigano says the very same in the next uh, paragraph of this section. He says, just as happens in nature, this eclipse does not take place all at once. It passes from light to darkness when a celestial body inserts itself between the sun and us. This is a relatively slow but inexorable process in which the moon of the anti-church follows its orbit until it overlaps the sun, generating a cone of shadow that projects over the earth. And he has in bold in his transcript, We now find ourselves in this doctrinal, moral, liturgical, and disciplinary cone of shadow. But he emphasizes it is not yet the total eclipse that we will see at the end of time under the reign of the Antichrist, which I think is what Our Lady is is referring to in La Salette. But it is a partial eclipse, he says, which lets us see the luminous crown of the sun encircling the black disk of the moon. Yeah. So, yeah, so I mean, it kind of sounds like Viganos, is he teaching two eclipses here? One now, um, one later? I think he's saying that it's a process that, like you were mentioning, that it happens mm-hmm. slowly over time, and we just haven't gotten to the right. full eclipse yet. Yeah, Because I hear some trads say, well, we're in eclipse. 
but I kind of feel like we aren't at the black point yet. The full blackout. Right. Right. I mean, I can go to mass. I know priests went to confession recently. Right. I would tend to agree with that. But I mean, I I kind of feel like right before the antichrist comes on the scene, it's going to be a, it's going to be a blackout. Not that it won't exist. People need to understand that the church will exist until the coming of Christ, but it will be hidden. As he says, the, what is it? The, the cone of what does he say cone of shadows or cone oh, of the cone of shadow yeah cone of shadows yeah it is i mean it's mysterious i mm-hmm. don't know i don't know if we can fully describe it until right. it's actually come to pass but yeah it's it'll be interesting i don't know if we'll if we'll be alive to see that or mm-hmm. or who knows mm-hmm. but regarding uh how this eclipse got going he definitely identifies it with modernism he says yeah. The process that led to today's eclipse of the church began with modernism without a doubt. Yes. The, the anti-church followed its orbit despite the solemn condemnations of the magisterium, meaning prior to the council, which in that phase shone with the splendor of truth. But, he says, with the Second Vatican Council, the darkness of this spurious entity came over the church. And he goes on to say, whoever then pointed to the sun, deducing that the moon would certainly obscure it, was accused of being a, quote, prophet of doom. And I immediately thought of John the 23rd's yes. opening address at the council in which he says, let's see, I've got the quote here, I think, in the daily exercise of our pastoral office, so this is John the 23rd, October 11th, 1962, we sometimes have to listen to listen much to our regret to voices of persons who, though burning with zeal, are not endowed with too much sense of discretion or measure. Or in more um, more modern or more recent times, we would say that their manner and tone is a little bit off, right? Right, right. <laughs> Give a throw out to Father Altman. So they got great zeal, but their manner and tone is a little off. It's a little too extreme. Right. Uh, John the Twenty Third says, in these modern times, they can see nothing but prevarication and ruin. And he goes on to say, we feel we must disagree with those prophets of doom who are always forecasting disaster as though the end of the world were at hand. What's interesting about that quote is he actually goes, you know, we're constantly hearing nowadays about human fraternity and all that kind of stuff with Pope Francis. But he's not the originator of that kind of language in even the New World Order. Here's what John the 23rd went on to say in that very same speech. Good, because I was about to say it. In the, the present order of things, divine providence is leading us to a new order of human relations, which by men's own efforts and even beyond their very expectations are directed toward the fulfillment of God's superior and inscrutable designs. And everything, even human differences, leads to the greater good of the church. Unbelievable. Yep. That is Fratelli Tutti yep. in seed form. That is the document on well, human. And let me give you another quote, John twenty third. But I see mankind is entering upon a new order, and yeah. perceive in this a divine plan. End quote. Using the language of new order. Yep. One of the one of the things I do in, in infiltration in this in that chapter, it's chapter sixteen. He says prophets of doom. And I asked the question in nineteen that's quote is from nineteen sixty two. In nineteen sixty two, 
pretty optimistic time moving into the 60s. Who were the prophets of doom that he was talking about? Right. And so you ask yourself, who is the most famous person on planet Earth, Catholic, who said anything about doom in the past 50 years from that point? It's the Fatima children. That's right. The only people who fit the description that John the 23rd is describing are the Fatima kids. And that's why I identify, I can't prove this, but I identify the prophets of doom as the three Fatima seers. Yep. And if it's true that just three years before this, John the 23rd opened the third secret of Fatima, which we know he did, and read it and said, this is not for my time or this is not for my pontificate. He is, in a way, rejecting the doom of the prophets. Right. And ultimately, the, the prophet par excellence is Our Lady herself uh, in point. this regard. Good yeah. point. Yes, it, because it didn't match with his uh, rosy rosy picture of the world and, and all the wonders. And, yes. and by the way, if y'all, the if y'all are interested in Third Secret, Matt and I have done a lot of videos on Third Secret. Go to yes. Dr. Taylor Marshall channel and just put Matt Gaspers, Marshall, Third Secret. We've done a lot. Also, Chris Ferrara, there's a lot of good info on it because Matt yes. and myself and Ferrara, we don't believe that the full Third Secret was revealed in the year 2000. We think we got lied to and tricked by the hierarchy. That might be a big shock to a lot of people, but you have to realize what's been going on for 20 years. They've been trying to deceive the laity. Yep. And now we know. And you and I, you and I did a show on that earlier this year. Where Archbishop Vigano re- revealed, I think it was in late April or early May, that he agrees now with that uh, yes. with that thesis. Uh, who, who in their right mind, who has actually spent thirty minutes studying it, believes <laughs> that the third secret was revealed? I've never met anyone who studied it who's like, yeah, it's, it's what exactly what the church said. No. Essentially, those who hold that position are wanting us to believe that members of what Vigano calls the homosexual current in the hierarchy, we just need to take their word for it. Like right. Cardinal Bertone uh, and Cardinal Sodano, the, the man who covered up for Father Marcel Maciel, the Legionnaires of Christ, we just need to take their word for it that the full secret has been revealed, despite all of this you know, mountain of circumstantial evidence to the contrary. Folks need to go read uh, Chris Ferrara's book, The Secret Still Hidden. The very important book very for good. that topic. Very good. Now, I, I want to turn, one of the things I thought was really interesting was Archbishop Vigano referring to the Katekon, the Katekon, which is a reference to Second Thessalonians. Yes. Uh, it's a withholder, something restraining, holding it back. And I'm going to read this. It's, it only appears, I think, once in his speech. I think it's in the, open, yeah, the yeah, first in the section opening. of his talk. So he says, in this struggle, providence has placed the Church of Christ, and in particular the Supreme Pontiff, as katekon, that is, the one who opposes the manifestation of the mystery of iniquity. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-7. through 7. Look it up. Read it. And sacred scripture warns us that at the manifestation of the Antichrist, the obstacle, the katekon, will have ceased to exist. Now, I want to pause here and say I don't actually agree with Vigano on this point. If you read 2 Thessalonians, Paul says that it will be moved away. It'll be moved away. All right. 
You could even say withdrawn. The The Latin is even more interesting. I, I don't have it in front of me, but I read it just the other day. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't think we can say it ceases to exist. I would almost maybe place it in the eclipse category of maybe we don't see it or it loses. Or it its... kind of ceases to serve its function. Right, maybe. but it's still there. It still could come right. back. Is what I is this what I want to say? And 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 all my all my respect to Archbishop Vigano. I just I think that's one maybe um, exegetical move that's maybe a little bit too forceful on Second Thessalonians, but maybe he has something else that I'm not aware of. So he right. says we'll have ceased to exist, and I'm not so sure about that. I'd want to I'd want to um, lighten that a little bit. And then he says it seems quite evident to me that the end times are now approaching before our eyes, since the mystery of iniquity has spread throughout the world and the disappearance of the courageous opposition of the Katekon. Right. And would you say, I mean, he seems to associate the Katekon with the papacy. Do you think that's fair? He does. A lot of people are doing that right now. Historically in the Church Fathers, the prominent position is that the Katekon is the Roman Empire. Okay. And the Roman Emperor St. John Chrysostom does that. Augustine says he's not sure. I'm actually doing a ton of research on it right now because I'm very, very interested in it. The book that I mentioned earlier in the show, let me put the title on the screen. if I can find it real quick. This is by the anonymous author that came out. It's not me, in case you're wondering. <laughs> uh, even though I am very interested and I'm, I'm studying the issue. Uh, it's called Foolishness of God by an anonymous author, Ignatius de Montfort. He's done a lot of research. There's actually a whole chapter in the book on Katekon. I just ordered and got in the mail today, Matt, the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius. All right. This was originally a Syriac or um, Aramaic document that was translated quickly into Greek, quickly quickly into Latin. And it's really a whole theology of the Katekon as the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor with the thesis that there will be a great monarch in the future. We've talked, we've heard about the great French monarch and I did a show on that before. This doesn't say French, but this ancient, um, apocalyptic book, which I believe dates to like the eight hundreds or seven hundreds. It puts forth the thesis of a great emperor, um, who will withhold. And then he, once he's out of the way, the antichrist will come in. Gotcha. And, you, and you see this in the church fathers. You see it a lot in the medieval prophecy. And I'm just trying to, to distill it all and get my, my head around where it comes from. Is it authentic? Because this tradition doesn't place it with the papacy. It places it with a Christian sainted king. Okay. Okay. Well, that could certainly be the case as well. I'm working on it, people. Give me, give me some weeks, <laughs> maybe give me some months, but I'll, I'll put something out on it. There we go. Um, another important theme that, that is excellently, uh, discusses, what is this in section four of his talk? And again, the full transcript of this is available uh, oh, at our, our website. Uh, before we jump to section four, can we oh, do yes. one more thing in one? Yeah, absolutely. So in the first section, he, uh, talks about idols and he also talks about the mafia of St. Gallen. And so I'm, I was really about them plotting to put one of their own in Peter's chair. I really like that. That's a main thesis of my book, Infiltration. So yes. I was very, he mentions Car- Cardinal Daniels, who yep. was a very evil man. 
And so I just, I like that he's bringing what was considered over a year ago a conspiracy theory is now becoming fact. Yep. I mean, if, if he had said this two years ago, people would have laughed at him. Now, right. a room full of people hear this and they say, nod their head, yes, exactly. We all believe that that's the case. The Sankal Mafia is real. They wanted to replace John Paul II with one of their own modernists. And everyone's, yep. and even secularists, people are like, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. We know that yep. we know that now in 2020 to be the case, not a conspiracy theory. So I just exactly feel vindicated because right. I got kicked in the head over and over about that. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. And you mentioned he talks about idols. He does bring up the Pachamama mm -hmm. in that same section. He talks about in extraordinary times uh, and the present crisis in the church is indeed extraordinary. Events go beyond the ordinary known to our fathers and he get, goes through a kind of a litany of things that we're seeing now. And in, in these extraordinary times, we can hear a pope deceive the faithful, which we see almost on a daily basis, sadly. Uh, we see princes of the church accused of crimes that in other times would have aroused horror and have and been met with severe punishment. Witness, uh, witness in our church's liturgical rites that seem to have invent, been invented by Cranmer's perverse mind. So that's obviously a uh, reference to Anglican, you know, yep. Protestant Anglican Church of England, yep. Right. And I think that's also the title of um, Michael Davies wrote a series years ago. I think one of them is called Cranmer's Ungodly Order about the liturgical reform. Absolutely. Great. And, then and everyone should this... read that Michael Davies trilogy if you're serious. If you're really serious on the liturgy, you got to read yes. that. You got to read that. Absolutely. And he talks about also seeing prelates process the unclean idol of the Pachamama into St. Peter's Basilica and add insult to injury after our, our friend and brother-in-arms, uh, Alexander Tshugul, mm -hmm. disposed of the idol with a friend of his. Then we hear the Vicar of Christ apologize to the worshipers of that simulacrum of a Catholic if a Catholic dares to throw it into the Tiber. As we remember, Pope Francis apologized to anyone who was offended by Mr. Teshugal disposing of that, that filthy idol. Terrible. Yes. Uh, so let's see here. And uh, did a, did an interview this week with Alexander Teshugal on Monday. It's a great interview. Yes. People should watch it. It's very good. He's great. So that might be a good segue into uh, this next theme that Archbishop Vigano covers kind of briefly, but I think it's important to, to highlight it. And it's the theme of true versus false obedience, because I think a lot of people probably watching right now and others have the question, well, if so many members of the hierarchy are infected with the virus of modernism and are actually functioning as, you know, double agents, basically, they are true hierarchs, but they're also members of the anti-church or the deep church. Um, what is our duty of obedience toward these men? And I think that's it's a valid question. It's a very pressing question. So Archbishop Vigano says, Let me be clear. Obedience to the sacred pastors is certainly praiseworthy if the commands are legitimate. But obedience ceases to be a virtue and in fact becomes servility if it is an end in itself and if it contradicts the purpose to which it is ordained, namely faith and morals. That is a very important and crucial point, that the moral virtue of obedience 
which is a natural virtue, is always subordinate to the supernatural theological virtue of faith. Yes. Because because the natural virtues, the moral virtues, have a human superior as their end, right. whereas the theological virtues have God as their immediate end. So we, in, in the words of St. Peter, we have to obey God rather than men if the commands issued by our human superiors are not legitimate, if they contradict faith and morals. Yeah. So very important for people to understand that. And, and people need to, to realize, I mean, let's just give some examples. Okay, so let's say your bishop said, I want you to trample this crucifix. You couldn't say, well, he's my spiritual authority, my bishop, I have to do it. Right. That's ridiculous. You would say, no, hail Jesus Christ, and you'd pick it up and kiss it. Right. And trample the crucifix. If a cardinal handed you a baseball bat and said, smash this statue of Mary, or throw this Bible into a fire... You would say, "No, I resist you." Right. And could, could he still time... be? Could he still be your bishop somehow? That's a debate we're all having, right? It seems right. so. It seems so. But we would never obey those commands. If a right. pope said, "Worship Pachamama" on the first Sunday of October every year, we would say, "No." Right. Well, he's the pope. He's the supreme pontiff. I don't care. Paul says in Galatians, if anyone preaches another gospel to you, even an angel from heaven, let him be anathema. Yes. And the Greek Bishop says Schneider anathema. Bishop quoted that verse during his address at the CIC. We all need to memorize it, folks. Galatians oh. 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 8. 1, 8. Galatians 1, 8. Everybody tattoo it into your brain. That's right. So we only and a, a very timely example. Another one, especially during COVID, if your bishop says you have to receive Holy Communion on the hand, no, no, nope, nope, not going to do it. And then this raises the question, Matt, for priests: If your bishop says do not give communion on the tongue, what does the priest do? <laughs> Well, he can either obey God or he can obey man, which you have I mean, to make is, a decision. This is where we're getting, folks, and it's going to get real complicated. And Matt, I fear the trad community will be broken and divided over these kind of questions. Yeah. Do you think so? Yeah, I think that's a very real mm -hmm. concern. Um, I would, I think, especially for uh, traditional orders, communities who are tied to the local ordinary. Um, that's going to put them in some very difficult right. circumstances for sure. Yep. Yep. Depending on who that local ordinary is. I mean, as Archbishop Vigano has acknowledged in past circumstances, we can't, we, we have to avoid going to extremes. We can't assume that every diocesan bishop is consciously a member of the deep church. I mean, there are some who to varying degrees are of goodwill and are trying to do the best they can with the, uh, the malnourishment that they themselves have received. Yes. So we can't jump to the extreme, like the, basically the set of Acontists do that every diocese there, there are no more diocesan bishops because they're all part of the deep church and not even members of the true church. That's going to an extreme, but we do have to recognize, you know, 
it's the whole position of recognize and resist. You can recognize their authority, their legitimacy as successors of the apostles, but that doesn't mean that everything that they say and do, you can just blindly follow. Yeah. Yeah, the thing, and I'm, I'm recognized resist all the way. The thing that I'm struggling with in 2020, and I'll just be honest with everyone, is where, where do we get to the point where we have to break communion? So, Matt, what state do you live in? You, I'm in Colorado. Okay, so you're in Colorado. What if, um, let's just say, I, I don't know, I don't want to dox you, but let's say your bishop dies right. and Pope Francis institutes James Martin as your new bishop. <laughs> okay, I'm, I mean, this could happen. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and I'm just thinking out loud and I'm being honest with you people. At that point, can a Catholic say, I am not in communion with my diocesan bishop? Like, where is... We recognize and we resist, but where does the where does the line come where we say I am not in communion with that bishop? Yeah, I see what you're saying. See what I'm saying? Like this is, and I I kind of embracing that this is going to happen in the next five to ten years. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Right? Uh, I mean, don't you think we could get to that point? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think the important thing for folks to remember is that. <clears throat> It's never within the, the power of a private individual Catholic to depose a prelate. Correct. So we just don't have the legal authority to do that. However, we cannot and have we have no obligation to be, um, how, whatever language you want to use, in communion with someone who's obstinate, clearly obstinate in heresy. Right. Like, like I think it's safe to to see that Father James Martin, for example, he seems to be very obstinate in his errors. Um, so yeah, it's going to put, it's going to put us in very difficult situation. I don't know how that, all that's going to play out, but um, something that we need to have on our radar for sure. Yeah. Good. Okay. What else, what else do you want to cover? We're, we're getting a little bit shorter here on time, um, yes, but, I think but there's a lot of good stuff here. There is, there is. My, like you said, maybe we'll have to do a part two. We'll see. Yeah, I think we might have to. You know, I thought it was interesting that he uh, quoted uh, Massimo Fagioli. That was yes. interesting. Uh, he, he says, this is confirmed by the words of Massimo, Massimo Fagioli uh, on the new encyclical Fratelli Tutti, Tutti, rather. Pope Francis' pontificate is like the standard lifted, lifted up before Catholic integralists and those who equate material continuity and tradition. Catholic doctrine does not just develop. Sometimes it really changes. For example, on the death penalty in war. This is, I got to hand it to Massimo and James Martin and even Francis. Max Beans. Max Beans. <laughs> That's what Massimo Fagioli means, by the way. Max Beans. They really believe that Francis, as the vicar of Christ, well, Francis doesn't like that term, as Pope, has changed moral theology that had many, many papal statements and precedents on the death penalty. They believe that, just like we do, that all popes previously thought that the death penalty was just and admissible in certain cases, as it's taught in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and by the Church Fathers. Right. But Francis came along and changed it. They My believe favorite that. part of your video on Fratelli Tutti was the time machine section where you right. talk about him traveling back to yeah, the Francis goes back to <laughs> Francis goes back to Moses and they're you know they're about to go into Canaan to, to slaughter the Canaanites and wage war and 
Pope Francis says, no, don't do that. You need to dialogue with the Canaanites. <laughs> maybe, maybe you can do some Canaanite liturgy, worship some of their gods. They can come and learn about you. You can have a conference. You can take pictures, wear their totems and medallions around your neck. You know, or he goes to, to King David and he's like, don't kill Goliath. Put that slingshot down. You need to dialogue with Goliath. Have a conference with Goliath. Ecumenical meetings with Goliath. Learn about learn about Philistine religion. Yep. Learn about their values. Maybe bring a Philistine god into one of your churches or your your temple. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But they really believe Francis has changed moral teaching. And if that's right. true, guess what else they can change? Teaching on marriage, teaching on homosexuality, lesbianism, teaching on um, transsexuality, teaching yep. on gender, teaching on heaven and hell, which they've already kind of done, teaching on sacraments, teaching on what is the church. This is the problem with modernism, and this is why we reject it. Absolutely. Uh, one section that I found very interesting in uh, His Excellency's talk is section five called Idem Sentire, or the same mind of revolution and counsel. And he's referring to the revolutionary spirit of, uh, you know, 1789 and how that manifested at the council. So he has one list that kind of goes through some examples of the what he calls the revolutionary ideology, for example, the democratic principle um, the erasure of the historical past, the emphasis on the freedom of individuals, the continuous evolution of morality and ethics. And this one is a big one. We just celebrated the Feast of Christ the King over the mm -hmm. weekend Sunday. The presumed secular nature of the state. That phrase yes. basically encapsulates the root error in Dignitatis Humanae, is the presumed secular nature of the state. Uh, and also the equality of religions, mm. not only before the state, but even as a general concept to which the church must conform. And then he goes down and says, all these principles propagated by Freemasonry, uh, ideologues and New World Order supporters coincide with the revolutionary ideas of the council. And then he presume, pro uh, proceeds to relate each of those errors in the list above to their manifestation at the council. So as I mentioned, he talks about the democratic principle. He relates that to the democratization of the church began with Lumen Gentium, and today it is realized in the Bergolian synodal path. So he's mm -hmm. connecting all the dots back and forth. Yep. And regarding this notion of the secular uh, nature of the state, he connects it, of course, uh, to Dignitatis Humanae, and he says uh, the religious freedom theorized in Dignitatis Humanae is today brought to its logical and extreme consequences with the declaration of Abu Dhabi and the latest encyclical Fratelli mm -hmm. Tutti. He also mentions the adoption of the concept of secularism has led to the abolition of a state religion in Catholic nations, because that's, I mean, that's Totally, it's presumed in Dignitatis Humanae that the state should be secular, that there should no longer be confessional states. And right. that's a big problem. That's, and that's not Catholic. Right. That would be like saying uh, we, the 
society of Marshall, uh, we go to church on Sunday, but we do not ad- identify the Marshalls as being Catholic right? publicly. It, it's what? a repudiation of quas primas and the it social is. kingship of Christ. It is. Even if it's not explicit, I mean, that's the assumption of the text is that the state is secular and it has no obligation to uh, favor the true religion. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Horrible. And yet we saw, beginning with the Armenians in 303 and with the Romans in the early 300s and then on and on throughout Europe, every time Catholicism came to a culture and came to a state, they did what they the church wanted them to do, which was recognize Christ as the king of their territory. They all mm-hmm. did it. Every single one of them did it. You know, we need Pope, we we need Pope Francis... Yeah, it's why we call it Christendom. We need Pope Francis to get in his time machine, go back into time, and say, Clovis, you know, I know you want to make the Franks, you want to make a Catholic kingdom, but don't do, keep it secular, man. Right? <laughs> don't don't put crosses on your banners. That might offend some people. There's some pagans right. and and maybe some Jews on your land somewhere. They're going to be offended if you officially say the Franks are Catholic. You know, right. or he goes goes to King Edward of England. I mean, Francis would have to spend a lot of time in his time machine going back in time. <laughs> Constantine, what are you doing? You're you're using yeah. state money and building basilicas? Speaking of, today is the anniversary of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. There you go. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Francis would have to go back and tell all these monarchs that them lifting up the banner of the cross over their kingdom was a mistake because <laughs> it might offend certain citizens. Right. Uh, no, yep. Francis is wrong. Yes. People don't like it when we say that Francis is wrong. Yep. If he's if, if Francis is right, all the other popes are wrong. I mean, you gotta. It's you're resisting the pope. Well, which pope? Right. Other popes <laughs> said that this is how we're supposed to do it. Yep. Yep. Go read the encyclicals of Leo the Thirteenth in particular comes to mind about the, the Christian constitution of right. states, for example. I mean, it's mm-hmm. very clear that the state, no less than the individual, has an obligation to to recognize the true religion and to favor it. I, you, error has no rights. That's to sum it up, basically. Right. Error has no civil rights. Individual people... Yeah, it's not like we're talking about forced conversions like they do in Islam, but we are saying that the state has an obligation to recognize the true religion, which it's possible for it to discern what it is and to mm-hmm. to revere it as such. Yeah, it doesn't mean that uh, a Jewish person living in France was forced to become Catholic, but it does mean that the state is Catholic. Right. And operates as Catholic. And, and then it has a duty to protect it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Which is what Catholic confessional states always did up until the 1900s. This is the historic Catholic way of doing things. We Americans are off on this because we've grown up and we were taught in elementary school separation of church and state. So we Americans are messed up on this. Right. We, most, many of us Catholics don't even know. But when you go back and you – and this is another thing. When a pope dies, his magisterial teaching doesn't become void. Right. The magisterial teaching of Leo the Thirteenth and Leo the First and and Pius the Fifth, 
all their all their magisterial teaching is still in effect in 2020. Right. It it doesn't expire when they die. That's another thing Catholics a lot of Catholics don't get either. But like what Pope Francis yesterday said. Right, because we're so used to hearing about the importance of the so-called living magisterium that we forget about the the tradition of the church that actually supersedes, mm-hmm. precedes historically, theologically, and supersedes the individuals occupying the offices. Yeah, yeah. Earlier this year, I did a, an interview with Professor De Matei about that subject because he's written a book on that subject called, um, I think it's Apologia for Tradition available from Angelus Press. It's a very, it's a small book. It's an easy read. It's, it's very important stuff. So good. Good. I think if I could bring up maybe one, a very, uh, my, the diff, the most difficult section for folks to read, I think for folks to hear from Archbishop Vigano, who may not fully be in tradition yet, who maybe are still in the reform of the reform hermeneutic of continuity kind of crowd is section six. Okay. The instrumental role of the what he calls the moderate Catholic in the revolution. Yes. He actually uses some, you know, um, charity requires truth. He's not saying these things to shame anybody, or but he just wants them to come to grips with the reality of, of what they're doing. So he says he's talking about the so-called conservatives. Mm-hmm. That is a centrist part of the ecclesial body. He identifies the progressive wing of the council and the traditional Catholic wing. And as you and I both know, the conservatives try to claim that while the progressives go to one bad extreme and the traditionalists go to the other bad extreme, but we're in the middle, we're, we're, we're in the, the virtuous middle. Right. But uh, Archbishop Vigano kind of uh, reigns on that parade in this talk. He says... Uh, a centrist part of the ecclesial body that ends up carrying water for the revolutionaries because while rejecting their excesses, it shares the same principles. Yes, I agree. And I've been one. I know, I know I've been in there and I mean, this is, we've seen it again and again. I'm going to name a name. Catholic answers live. They constantly carry water for the errors of Pope Francis. Well, he didn't really said civil union, he said, the Spanish means living together. That's not, well, that's just as bad. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was a translation. So what we see are the conservative Catholics, the conservatives, the neocon. They, the the James Martin, just, they throw a ticker tape parade and they celebrate. And right. then what happens is, as the conservatives come along and they try to prop it all up to get people still on board with the agenda with Francis and globalization and ecumenism and all that. And it ultimately they're they are I mean carrying water is the right term. They're carrying water for the James Martins of the church. If I can give a, a recommendation for folks to read there uh, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski wrote an excellent article in September 2018 on this subject called why conservatism or conservatism is part of the problem, not mm. part of the solution. It's published by one Peter five. And he essentially explains how conservatism is basically liberalism in slow motion. Ah. It's very, it's a very interesting read. I highly recommend it for folks to check that out. Why conservatism is part of the problem, not part of the solution. Right. Good. Well, I think we should pause here. I think maybe we should do a part two or come back to it. 
Um, yeah, I think I mean, there's we, so much to cover. Yeah, we we really, I'd say we, I only got a, about fifty percent. I mean, he talks about George Soros. I mean, there's so much good stuff. He talks about Fratelli Tutti a lot, which is a big issue. Um, so we might need to come back. Maybe what we'll do, Matt, is we'll come back and we'll we'll do this document again, Vigano, and we'll go through the globalism, humanism, ecumenism, which is section towards the end, like starting at section yeah. seven. Maybe that's what we can do next time. Yes. And that's really just, it's really the, he talks about the Grand Lodge, Freemasons. Alta Vendita. Alta Vendita, all that. I mean, it's, this is good stuff. So Global Compact on Education. Oh, yep. bad, <laughs> bad. So that, that right there, I think will be a good show and it'll, it'll, um, it'll be tight. Yes. It'll be tight. So. All right, well, let's let's close up there. If you like this show, please hit the thumbs up, like button, and please share it on Facebook and Twitter. Really do. The most important thing you can do for this show is share it. So please share it and subscribe and hit the button. That way when we go live like we are now, you'll be notified. Hey, Dr. Uh, Dr. Taylor Marshall podcast has gone live and you can come watch us live. And then also you should subscribe to the Catholic Family News channel so you can watch Matt Gaspers. And do his, uh, you get the weekly roundup and other things going on there. Tell people how to get there. That's right. Yes. So you visit uh, CatholicFamilyNews.com for our website. And then we're on YouTube. I forget our exact uh, YouTube name, but you just search for Catholic Family News on YouTube and you'll find us. We try to do a weekly news roundup, as Dr. Marshall just said. And we do have a monthly uh, print publication as well. And it also comes in e edition format. So if you enjoy the, commentary on here and on our channel we do ask for your support uh, in the form of a subscription we greatly appreciate it great do it it's great it's good it's good periodical catholic good catholic articles all right we'll end there and of course make sure you're praying that rosary every single day you know who's a big advocate for praying the rosary archbishop vigano of course so yep. pray that rosary every day rattle the beads if you don't pray the rosary every day you're not on the team right matt not on the team. You'd be a Catholic. But you're not part of the team. You can't show up in battle and not have a weapon. And this is the weapon. This is it. The rosary. The beads. So rattle the beads. Pray the beads every day. Read the Bible every day. Get a biblical worldview. Understand what it was like to be in the time of King David. Uh, the time of the prophets. The time of Ezekiel. Time of Isaiah. Jeremiah, read the New Testament, read the book of Acts and see what Catholicism looked like in the first few years. This will begin to change the way you understand your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So read the Bible, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day. Read traditional theology. Matt and I have already recommended. Get a copy of the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Yep. And and read good books. Go to good conferences like CIC and uh, get go to a traditional Latin Mass. You know, the things that I'm always talking about, you know, get get serious about traditional Roman Catholicism and get serious about Jesus. All right. Our next show, we'll be able to cover that and uh, what Archbishop Vigano has to say. He has a really galvanizing conclusion to this talk. And I'll look forward to discussing that with you. Awesome. Awesome. So look, everyone, subscribe. That way you get notified for our part two. And remember, our Lord Jesus Christ said you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. Matt Gaspers, thanks for being with us. Thank you.